Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, and uh, very excited to talk to you today. we got a lot of great things to talk about. Uh, let me quickly introduce and say hello to my co-host, uh, Rob Hunt. Uh, Rob of Lene Holdings out in New York for the summer. How are you, sir? Doing well, Larry. Excited to be back on the show this week. Yeah, we missed you last week, but, you know, Jim and I managed to hold down the fort just like the good old days. So, but you were missed with your your insight and your your dead nerdism is always missed. <laughs> Thank you, appreciate that. Well, like I like to say it as it is. Where I'm also joined today uh, by my other co-host Jim Marty of uh, Bridge West. Jim is in uh, where are you? Which part of Colorado are you in today? I'm in Jim? Denver today, and it's a beautiful day in the mid 80s and a blue sky. Um, Lovely. We got lots of good stuff to talk about. Maybe we'll start on the marijuana side because we've got so much on the music side that if we start there, we'll never make it back over to the marijuana side. Rob, right before we hopped on, we were all talking about what's going on with the SAFE Act, which is something that uh, we've talked about on this show before. But there are some updates uh, involving Cory Booker. You want to bring us up to speed? Sure. So for everyone out there listening, I think most people are pretty familiar with what the SAFE Act is. And essentially, it's a way for cannabis-based businesses to have access to financial institutions where previously they have, a lot of them have banking relationships, but these are banking relationships now where the banks can feel comfortable. There'll be nothing that would uh, prevent the feds from coming in and coming after them for money laundering or for any other nefarious activity for banking a cannabis-based client. So if SAFE were to pass, it would absolutely open up the banking industry two canvas companies in a way that we haven't seen to date. But there are issues with that. And that's that the, the banking would, for the most part, go to the larger companies. The, the companies that have the savvy and have the ability to, to work with the larger financial institutions would be the ones that would be the beneficiaries of the change in the law. And what Cory Booker is now saying is, you know, that's great. But if that's all we're doing is just creating more wealth for the already wealthy without addressing the issues of uh, social justice and cannabis reform that helps the people that have been you know, badly prejudiced by the drug war, then I'm not sure that I'm in favor of it. Obviously, Booker's pushing for much more broad sweeping reform on a, uh, on a federal basis. So safe is a nice first step for the industry, but it's not necessarily a nice first step for those that are struggling and still don't have access to, to the industry itself. So essentially, he's saying if we're widening the gulf in the process of passing safe, then I will oppose safe. Uh, and I think what's likely to happen is that Booker's going to look for some sort of a solution of, okay, if we pass safe, there needs to be some other rider tacked onto it that allows for more social justice to be uh, done at the same time while we wait for a larger act like you know, Schumer's bill to go through or for safe or states to go through. So knowing that we think legalization is probably still several years away, as we've discussed. What can be done in the near term? And Booker, I think it's, it's, it's rare to think that the Dems would be the, the ones, you know, stifling progressive legislation. But in this case, they'd be doing it to try to, you know, create something that's, you know, more beneficial to everyone rather than just a specific group of the already wealthy. Now, Rob, one of the things that we've often talked about is that for the most part, these topics tend to be fairly bipartisan in support, right? That there's a lot of red states that have been introducing new marijuana laws, and we're going to be talking about two more states that are just coming online in a minute. Um, right? So what I find that's interesting about this is it doesn't really seem to, to, to swing one way or the other along party lines. What seems to be the holdup with this? Is it, is it, is it Booker's amendment now that's going to slow things down, or will that uh, help clear some roadblocks and speed it up? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, ultimately, the roadblock is the same roadblock that's always been there, which is a 60-vote threshold in the Senate. 
So getting anything across the line is, is relatively tricky. But what I'll say is that the Dems normally are banking on the fact that their coalition of you know 50 right now would all vote in lockstep on any sort of canvas legislation. But even that's not the case. It, it might be the case on SAFE because it's not sweeping change in, in legalization. But, but to actually get 10 people to cross the aisle is difficult. In this situation, now we're talking about Dems saying, well, you know, if this doesn't do what we want to do in, in terms of supporting a lot of our constituents that you know, we claim to be looking out for, then we'd rather thwart our own bill than, than put through something that is very unpopular to a lot of our constituents because it doesn't give them the ability to actually participate in an industry that has now largely just been handed over to a large group of MSOs that don't need the help, don't need the, the they've already got access to banking relationships. So, yeah, I mean, if the Republicans were smart on this issue going into the midterms, they might say, oh, it's really the Dems that are that are stifling progress. Like, we're in favor of it. We would have voted for SAFE. We're, we're all for changing the banking regulations. But, you know, it's Booker and his coalition that stopped it. So this is the first time that Booker's opening the door to um, allowing the GOP to, to come in and, and sort of turn the tables on how they think about canvas policy and legislation. Well, very interesting, interesting points. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, so from an accounting point of view, almost all of our clients, and we have over 500 license holders, nationwide clients, they all have checking accounts. They don't have true banking. I, I think the real benefit of the SAFE Act will be to allow retail stores to accept MasterCard and Visa. That's the big one. If you go into a dispensary and they take MasterCard and Visa, they're they're probably deceiving MasterCard and Visa and saying they're a pizza shop or something like that. So to me, that's the real benefit of the Safe Banking Act is allow credit cards, allow get some bank loans, lines of credit. Because the industry, you are correct, it does not have banking in the true sense, but most cannabis companies can get a checking account. Jim, let me ask you this question. Is there any way to estimate what making credit card services available to this industry would do to the overall level of sales? Do we think that would increase sales? Uh, would, would sales pretty much remain the same because people are finding the cash to buy what they want? <laughs> what do you think about that? Well, outside of cannabis, I think the business statistics are people will spend between 10, 10 and 20% more if they can use a credit card for any purchase. So I think that would carry over to the cannabis industry. So it wouldn't just be so much a question of if they would buy versus how much they would buy. Right, right. Okay. Very interesting. And that's a good point, actually, that when we talk about banking, banking tends to be a pretty broad topic in this industry, and sometimes you can break it down. And and certainly the ability uh, to do business by plastic would make a lot of sense. Rob, what do you think about that? I think that access to credit cards is very, very helpful. It certainly makes things more convenient. It certainly makes the the ability for these companies to be efficient significantly easier. If you think about that every single day, they've got to figure out where to deposit uh, cash, filling out SARS reports, finding armored car services to do pickups, all the other inefficiencies that go along with the cash business that are alleviated through the use of traditional means of, of accepting payment. It just makes a huge difference for the industry as a whole. But again, for that to happen, I think that safe safe would certainly, I think, solve it. But then it's a question of whether or not Visa, MasterCard, Discover, et cetera, would actually still change their policies or whether they would say, okay, that gives us some comfort, but until legalization happens, we don't want any part of this. And I think there's a fair amount of financial institutions, including the credit card companies, that may take that approach. 
So we'll see. We'll see whether or not passing safe is the is the panacea that people hope for with respect to A, credit cards, and B, institutions like Wells, Chase, and B of A. Yes. As a side note, very few people, especially the millennial generation, carry very little of any cash. In fact, it's interesting up at Red Rocks for concerts this year, the vending people will not take cash. It's all credit cards. So... Yeah, be a huge step forward. Hopefully, it'll we'll see something happen here before the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, okay. look, and Rob, you know, go ahead, I was going to say we all deal with it. I mean, I think all of us have had clients that pay us in cash. Not that we want to necessarily accept. I mean, obviously, everyone still gives me my ten ninety nines at the end of the year and all the rest of the fun stuff that goes along with that. But I've, I've had to accept cash as a as someone who's worked in the cannabis industry for years as part of just what we sign up for when we get into this industry. So I'd certainly rather be paid by check by every client. I'd rather be paid by electronic means and wire transfer, et cetera. But we just haven't had that available to us every time. It's most of the time that's the way I get paid. But I'm sure, you know, Larry, I'm sure you've had a client or two that paid you in cash. Yeah. Absolutely. But but you, you touched on something a second ago when you focused for a minute on the public perception as to what's holding up the bill this time around. And what's important about that is, of course, that, that Cory Booker is doing it because he's another uh, politician who's trying very hard to bring this concept of social equity into the industry. It's a, it's a concept that people spend a whole lot of time talking about, <laughs> but I can't say that I've seen very many good examples of it where it really worked out the way everybody hoped and expected, and it was it was greeted in a in a positive way. And and I don't mean to suggest that that people don't believe that that certain groups should have certain benefits, perhaps, and advantages, especially in an industry that has caused so much more collateral damage on their communities, perhaps, than others. But the question becomes, when you have something as valuable as, as the Safe Banking Act and as, as, as all of the good that it can bring in terms of safety and financial certainty and and all sorts of things like that, is, is that the place where we want to draw the line for something like this? Or... Is it to say this is exactly the place to draw the line because this is so important that in order to get that we have to have this we're gonna we're gonna have this attached to it and, and force you to pass this in order to pass that and I'm not enough of a politician you know to be able to explain that game very well myself but I see that happening more and more where social equity issues get tied into other related issues and then. Sometimes it works, but sometimes it, it works perhaps in the way that the, the sponsors hadn't intended. Well, looking at the timeline, you know, Congress is about to go on its August recess. Uh, so that only leaves them a few weeks before the end of the year. And then next, as soon as we turn into 2022, that's an election year. So I don't know that we're going to see any comprehensive cannabis legislation in 2022. I hope we do, but I am right. not optimistic. Yeah. Well, and, and speaking along these lines for a second, Rob, the other social equity issue that we were talking about that I know that you and I were very surprised to hear about because of the fact that there is a this is a Democratic administration, uh, although Joe Biden has not established by any means that he's a friend of the cannabis industry. But now there's news out that prisoners who have been released to home confinement even including low-level offenders, now that the COVID threat is, is has reduced sufficiently enough that the administration wants them all to be returned to jail. Is that correct? That is correct. And it's unfortunate. I mean, obviously, the policy is uniform across all, all offenders, not just drug offenders. But, you know, under, under the Trump administration, there was a policy that allowed a lot of people that were low-level offenders to be released to home confinement when the threat of COVID was so large that it was seen to be unfair to, you know, 
expose people or potentially expose people to a disease when COVID was running rampant through through a lot of institutions, federal incarceration places. But the expectation is that even as that subsided and these people weren't really seen as harm harmful to their uh, society and were still you know following the rules of home confinement, that they'd probably be able to stay that way. But as of you know in the last several days, the Biden administration has asked these people to return to 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 incarceration, which you know it, it's something I think is terribly unfortunate especially for low-level drug offenders. It just doesn't, it doesn't make a great deal of sense, especially because a lot of those low-level drug offenders are people that violated uh, probation or violated parole and were returned to prison. They might have had an underlying other offense, and the thing that you know, got them back was the fact that they tested positive for cannabis. So you stick those people back in jail, it just doesn't seem to make a, a great deal of sense, and certainly I, I don't think there's a great deal of justification for it. I would agree with that, assuming that we are talking about offenders whose primary offense that put them behind bars was low-level drug offenses, right? And the low-level drug offense wasn't maybe adjacent to or in addition to something that might uh, be a little more strict uh, and, or, or serious and require, uh, and require incarceration. But certainly, if we're just talking about people who are low-level drug offenders, you would almost think that this would give the Biden administration and any other administration perfect cover, right? They were released within the midst of a health crisis. I don't think there's a huge public outcry for a return of low-level drug offenders to jail. I know there's been a huge outcry about concerns about convicted felons and, 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 and people convicted of, of serious crimes possibly being let out or, or released for COVID or, or other things like that. But I don't think we see a whole lot of clamoring from people saying, I want low-level drug offenders put back in jail. Mm-hmm. And in fact, most people you know, probably know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who's a low-level drug offender. and It, it flies in the face of what the I, Biden administration said they are going to do. They, they've been very clear saying we're going to you know, say we're no longer going to uh, prosecute low-level drug offenders. We're not going to incarcerate low-level level drug offenders. So their, their whole policy of, of how they're going to treat new offenders, they've now backtracked on existing offenders. And it, it doesn't give me a great deal of confidence that they're going to you know, stay true to what their other mantra was going into the election cycle of how they're going to treat low-level offenders in general. Yep. Yep. I, yeah, I, I agree well. with all that. It doesn't, like I said, we're swinging into 2022, and I don't think we're going to see a lot of policy uh, changes on cannabis. Yep. Except at the state level, where we have both Rhode Island and, uh, well, Ohio coming on board for sure. Rob, what's the latest on Rhode Island? What I understand the latest is there's still a gulf between the governor's mansion and the state house. But that gulf is getting smaller and smaller. The belief is that going into the fall session, they're going to be able to find something that um, they're going to agree to. So they're not there yet, but they, uh, the word on the street, or at least the word in, in Providence, is they're very, very close. And the state lawmakers have certainly said this is a priority for them in the fall session. So if you were to say handicap this one, I would expect that we're going to see adult use legalization before the end of 2021 coming out of Rhode Island, or at least the framework that we passed early 2022. But Rhode Island is looking looking pretty good to go, Excellent. which is one more in, in New England. I think that would leave New Hampshire left for adult use to go through to complete the the six states. Excellent. It's always nice to see somebody else come on board, especially out there, and it's great as we, we fill up holes in the map. But just as importantly, for many reasons, Ohio is, is coming on board as well. What do you know about that one? Well, that one's more important, significantly more important. Rhode Island's a you know is a nice state. We all like the ocean state, but uh, yeah, how many people live there? Ohio is a major population state, right. so now we're talking about something that moves political needles. 
and what we're seeing there is that uh, adult use legalization is being proposed directly out of the state house, which is something that we love seeing. It means the lawmakers are ready to get behind this thing, and they're not waiting for ballot initiatives to get it done. So if there's real movement right. in Ohio, I mean, again, add that to the list of other major population states that we're expecting movement from, including Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Florida. And uh, Ohio's kind of the last one that's a, a major population state that has not either already moved or is not already in process. The last state to go with me you know, after that would be would be Texas. So Ohio, that's big yep. news for, for Ohio. It's big news for the industry. And I can tell you as a Michigan fan that it's about damn time this team that kicks our ass every year finally gets uh, some legalized marijuana in their state so we don't always just have to worry about it when they come to Ann Arbor. Yep. And not so, to mention uh, you know, that uh, Ohio's a red state, once again, to the bipartisan nature of the issue. Well, that's very true, both both red in terms of the Buckeyes and red in terms of their political leaning. And yes, your point is well taken, Jim. They're here. It's another state that's coming online for marijuana. Yeah, the other thing to take about Ohio is that lawmakers are doing this somewhat in a reactionary way because at the same time that they're proposing something, they've officially introduced the bill at the state level. They're doing it because they know that there's a valid initiative coming. So if they don't preempt this thing, it's passing. To, to Jim's point, Ohio, the red state or not, the support for adult use legalization is absolutely there. It's going to go through. Now it's a question of what goes through. And if they can say, all right, let's let's craft it in a way that we like, rather than the way that, you know, someone that's going to draft the bill in favor of whatever they want, we're smarter to do it now, knowing that's coming either way. I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay, guys. Good marijuana talk as always. There's There's lots more to talk about, but we have a ton of music to talk about today, and I, I don't want to get lost in all of that because we are all huge fans of live music and, and love to see it and hear about it whenever we can. Jim, lead us off and give us a quick rundown on the Tedeschi Truck Show that you were lucky enough to see this past weekend, was it? Yes, it was, uh, it was last weekend, and a great, great set, a really strong performance, but about uh, 60 minutes in, the sky opened up, uh, blinding rain and hail. I've been to Red Rocks hundreds of times, and this is the first time I had hail. And so it was a mad scramble. We went up top to the museum. We're packed in there. So as one of my friends said, this is going to be a good test of our COVID vaccines. And uh, none of us have gotten <laughs> sick in the week since. I think we're okay. But my son, Jack, was down down low at Red Rocks with his girlfriend, and they crammed in with about 100 guys and girls into the lower men's room and waited out the full-hour storm there. So many people... They didn't let anybody in the tunnel? I don't know. You'd need a pass to get in the tunnel, a backstage pass, so we didn't try for that. But okay. uh, a lot of people left during that. They, we didn't think they were coming back on because there was just thunder and lightning all around us. As we're walking down the stairs, I'm telling my friends, I wouldn't hold on to that metal handrail if I were you. And uh, so anyway, we waited it out, and they came back on finally. I mean, like I said, by the time they came back on, out of the 10,000 people that were there for the sold-out show, there was maybe 1,000 that were left, and they just hit a killer second set. They had, uh, we got more Angel from Montgomery, we got uh, Into Sugary, Long, Derek Trucks Jam. So it was a lot of fun. It was a great time. Just a crazy, crazy night. Well, Jim... I got to tell you this, besides the fact that I love Tedeschi Trucks, the second night of Red Rocks, 1984, there was a huge hailstorm that hailed, came down so hard, we were all driving to the show, 
in my in my girlfriend's Ford Taurus hatchback. She's now my wife, but she was my girlfriend at the time. And it was a brand new hatchback that she had gotten for graduation from the University of Michigan. And she drove it all the way out to Red Rocks with a whole group of us, despite her father telling her not to do it and her saying, what could go wrong? So we were on one of those uh, roads that you get onto the highway, Jim, to head west to Red Rocks, just a few miles east of the of the of where Red Rocks is. I don't remember which one it was, but there was a red roof in or wherever we were staying. And we had gotten something needed. We're trying to get to the highway and it started raining and then it started hailing so hard we couldn't see anything. You couldn't get under the, the bridge because all the the, 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 the the lanes there were filled up with people stopping. So she pulled into a gas station thinking she could go under a cover, but we couldn't do that either. So we just sat in her car and listened to the hail beat down. She had a steal your face sticker on the hatchback in the back, and all of a sudden a piece of glass held together by the steal your face sticker popped out. 30 seconds later, the glass on the hatchback was gone. Five minutes later, the hail stopped. We got it all scooped out of there. We put our tarps on there. We drove off to Red Rocks. We got there for just at the very end of the second set, and then uh, the next day had to deal with the broken glass. But uh, that was our hail story at Red Rocks in 1984. And when I saw Tedeschi Trucks uh, in Chicago a few years ago up at Ravinia Festival in Highland Park, we were sitting under the uh, pavilion, and at one point, Susan Tedeschi just came out and said, hey, look, they're telling us there's going to be a terrible storm coming through here in a few minutes, all you people out on the lawn, and it's a huge, huge lawn at, at Ravinia where people go and they picnic and they bring all sorts of fancy food and stuff. And she was like, we suggest that you get undercover. And within 20 minutes, it was raining so hard you couldn't see outside of the pavilion. And when it stopped 45 minutes later and the band came back out, there was nobody left on the lawn. So the same kind of a thing. We just happened to be lucky enough to have pavilion seats that night. But Tedeschi Trucks apparently can bring that out in people. So uh, Right, yeah, it was like a private know. show for the second set. Exactly, very nice. And in the world of live music, by the time... I'm sorry, Rob, you go ahead. Uh, I was going to say quickly that I love, Jim, that you brought up Angel from Montgomery because I think Susan Tedeschi sings it better than, than anyone. I mean, Bonnie Raitt obviously did a great job with it and it was originally a John Prine song. If you think about it, I think of John Prine as being top five greatest lyricists of all time and just exceptional at his craft. And I always find it interesting when writers write songs from the point of view of the opposite gender and writing that song from the perspective yes. of a woman was just a really, really yep. interesting way for Prine to think about it. And when he just discussed Angel from Montgomery, the goal of that song was to, to evoke desperation. Like, like how, do I, how do I sing about the, the, the feeling of desperation? And the lyrics to Angel from Montgomery, I just think, are absolutely magical. And you hear uh, Susan Tedeschi sing them, and she like, does it as, as well as anyone ever could. So hopefully she nailed it when you saw her at Red Rocks. It's one of my all-time favorites uh, in general and definitely when she performs it. Yep. Yes, in spite of being soaking wet and freezing cold, it was a great Angel from Montgomery into Sugar Reed. Yeah, I, that, I love how they do that, too. That's always a lot of fun. That's a nice little transition that they pull off. But in the world of live music, due to the vagaries of when we tape this show versus when it's aired, as of today, I have not yet seen, but by the time this show airs, I will have seen uh, a couple of fish shows down at Deer Creek, which I'm very, very excited about. It'll be my first uh, fish shows in quite some time, and it should be a lot of fun. Although, Fish has now sent out an announcement saying that due to you know current COVID conditions, that they're asking all of their fans to bring and wear masks during the show. So I think that'll be interesting, both in terms of seeing how many people actually comply with that and who's the first person to invent the mask that can hold its own joint. So I figure any of those things are just right around the corner and I shouldn't make it great, but I've been looking at the set lists and they look very, very exciting. 
I've been listening to a little bit of the music, and they sound great. And I, I just cannot wait to get out and see Fish. And if I can't see the Dead or Dead and Company or anything like that, then Fish is the band I want to see. And Deer Creek is a great place to go see them. I haven't been there since I saw the Dead in the early 90s, so I'm excited to go back. Yes, the um, shows I've heard have been really, really good. And our three shows in Denver are just a few weeks away, so we're all looking for that. Got my three tickets ready to go. Beautiful. Yep. Beautiful, beautiful. I'm really curious to know um, whether or not the, the, the Delta variant is going to start shutting down live music again, because we're certainly starting to see mask mandates all over the place. We're starting to see major cities rethink their policies. L.A. is certainly now rethinking whether or not they uh, are allowing people to gather indoors without mask mandates. I mean, for the first time, we're actually seeing a, a ton of anti-vaxxers now rush to get the shot based on the perception that the Delta variant is, the viral load is just that much greater and it's that much more dangerous. So I uh, just when I thought we were out of the woods, and I firmly believed it coming into June, July, I'm now worried about, are my kids going back to school this fall in person? And, and I don't know the answer to that right now, based on kind of the, the sheer volume of people that decide not to get vaccinated. Well, Rob, let me tell you something. My son is supposed to get married in Atlanta over Labor Day weekend, and he was supposed to be married in Atlanta over Labor Day weekend last year, and the wedding got postponed for a year because everything was shut down due to COVID. We were very, very hopeful, and once the vaccine came out, as close to confident as we could be that this wedding was going to go forward this year, and although we remain very hopeful, and as far as we can tell, the people we've invited and, and the, the folks who would be coming themselves are vaccinated, I certainly can't say what conditions will be like four weeks from now and whether people will feel comfortable making that travel. We're, we were already questioning the safety of going to the crowded fish, but I said, look, I've been vaccinated, I got my mask. I'm going to see fish. So I, yeah, I kind of drew my line in the sand there. We're seeing a little uptick here in Colorado. As I've been mentioning, our hospitalizations were right around 300 for many weeks. We've ticked up to 400. But again, that's with 10,000 people every night at Red Rocks. That's with an all-star game. So it seems to be under control as far as hospitalizations go. We'll just watch it over the next few weeks, see if it continues to tick up. Well, it definitely begs the question of yes. what are we going to see, you know, happen if, if we do go back into some sort of a lockdown? What does that mean for the cannabis industry? Is the cannabis industry going to go through another sort of second period of, of massive revenue production based on people staying home, not spending money on other things? I mean, I can't see us going into a full lockdown like we did previously, but if we go back into sort of a quasi-half lockdown, I, do we think that's going to inure to the benefit of the, of the cannabis industry in general, or do we think that it's not going to have the same effect that it had in 2020? Right. I think it'll have a bigger effect this time around because I think people will have seen how it was done the first time around and I think that people will be far more I, I think the mental effect of a second lockdown or even a partial second lockdown will be much greater than the first lockdown and I think that people will be turning very quickly to things like marijuana to help lighten the mood and to help kind of get them through these times and I would be very excited if I was the owner of a marijuana dispensary or a cultivation center or a new licensee here in Illinois who just got one of those licenses and boy you want to be up and running as fast as you can because we saw what happened during the first lockdown where sales numbers went each week we all talked about how our respective states were beating sales records week after week after week and I, I firmly believe that, that that will happen again that it was as tasteful as it might be to, to all of us, a lockdown or any kind of a change like that will, I think, definitely push up the uh, adult use cannabis market and the medical market. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting here in Colorado. A lot of my clients are having sales that are flat or below last year. On the other hand, the ones that are in tourist towns like uh, Durango are, are seeing you know record sales month after month after month as the tourist 
I'll come back to Colorado. Sure. I'm sure. That's big for them. Good talk. Nice diversion into cannabis again for a second. Important and good to do. Swinging back over to music for a minute here. Where we were going to is that we are currently, or again, due to the way we tape, at the time we're taping, we still are, but by the time this is aired, it will be over the days between for Garcia, marking the the eight or nine days between his birth and his passing. It gets great airtime on the the Grateful Dead station uh, on Sirius XM. And for this whole week, instead of playing regular Dead shows, they're playing all Jerry Garcia band shows, three per day, with David Gans and Trixie Garcia hosting them. And the banter between the two of them is very fun and very interesting. And Trixie tells great stories about Jerry as a father and how he would sit around and doodle cartoons for them and makes you wonder what it would be like to have Jerry at the table when you come home from school and you got to sit down for dinner, but seems to have done her very well. But it made me went, go back and, and take a look at all the Jerry Garcia band stuff that I have. And I know, Rob, you and I have talked about this before, and Jim, even you and I as well. I, I think on any given night, I would be just as excited, if not even more excited, to go see a Jerry Garcia band show than a Grateful Dead show. I mean, for those of us who were Grateful Dead fans, but really Jerry Garcia fans, the chance to see JGB was just get rid of all the other background noise and let's just focus on Jerry for two and a half or three hours. And he would typically rise to the occasion. I've been listening to more JGB than Grateful Dead in the last couple of weeks, like even independently of, you know, what Sirius has been doing. But just in general, when I'm like working on contracts or working on other things, I've just been, you know, plugging in the headphones and just turning on JGB. And I got to tell you, like, it, I find it in so many ways to be just so much more exciting to listen to if you're just a pure Garcia enthusiast, just because it's, it, there's never this waiting for other players to kind of take their solos. I mean, if there's another solo, it's just Melvin and Melvin's just crushing it. And the back and forth banter between those guys or previous to that, whether it was Merle Saunders, whoever was playing keys. It, the times I saw Garcia on stage, the happiest, the smiliest, sort of the, the playfulest was definitely with JGB, much more yes. so than it was with the Grateful Dead. The Grateful Dead in many ways seemed formulaic for him, but the, the joy that he, he seemed to experience playing the songs that he played versus his repertoire of what he wanted to play every night is so much fun. And the venues are so much smaller, which is much more intimate, much more uh, enjoyable. So I, I love, love the Garcia band. And, and I love talking about the Garcia band because it's always overshadowed by the Grateful Dead. And there's gotta be people that, you know, like, let's say Tab more than the like Fish or that like different iterations of other solo artists more than, than their primary band. But for me, it was an easy decision. Like don't miss Garcia band shows. You can miss a dead show here and there, but don't miss Jerry. I couldn't agree with you more, Rob. And I mean, I love the Grateful Dead. And, and and there was something about the whole Grateful Dead experience that was very special and unique to a Grateful Dead show. And and I think one of the other things we talked about is if, if there was going to be one night where, you know, there was going to be magic made, I think I'd rather be at a Dead show to watch magic made with the whole experience, perhaps, than just a Garcia band. Not that I wouldn't take it from Jerry, too, of course. But, you know, it, it's really kind of ma- trying to match up two very, very fine French wines, both of which are great. And well, depending on what mood you're in, maybe one versus the other. But the Garcia band was just consistently great. And I never remember seeing the Garcia band and walking out of there thinking, yeah, that wasn't such a good show. And and I had that feeling after a certain number of dead shows. And one, one show in particular, which is part of a box set that Garcia.com has released, are some shows that Jerry recorded over a three- or four-year period 
playing there every other year in, in August of uh, 87, June of 89, and August of 91 at a place called French's Camp along the Eel River in California. I was never fortunate enough to make it up there. Rob, do you have any familiarity with that venue? Yes, but I've never seen a show there. It's one of those places I kind of was like the pilgrimage to go see where it was because like one of the tapes I wore to death was the French's Camp Eel River from 87 Garcia Band. So and I'd heard so many great things about speaking to people that actually went to those shows, just what an intimate, cool place it was, basically right on the river. And it's it's a pretty darn cool spot. And uh, anyone that's been in that area, first of all, like Redwoods, I believe it's Mendocino County that they're in. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place. So there's very few spots. I mean, we talked about that fish show from Townsend, Vermont a few weeks ago. And I told you that the only thing I could think of that would compare to that would be would be French's Camp. So, or in Colorado, Jim, you obviously are very familiar with State Bridge, but sort of the same kind of a venue where it's just next to a right. river, super yep. cool, super small and intimate. So it's one of those spots that I really, really wish I'd gotten to see shows there. And it's a spot that they've done a lot of reggae shows over the years as well. Yes, I also have been listening to a lot of Jerry Garcia band, and I'm looking forward to hearing our clip. Nice lead-in, Jim. Just to give the audience a little introduction, on August 10th, 91, the Garcia Band played its final show of its three-show run that, that make up this box set on the Eel River. This is a clip from the second song of the first set. It's the band doing a great cover of Van Morrison's And It Stoned Me, and the, the, the guitar solo that we're going to listen to I think is probably a perfect example of what Rob was just talking about when Jerry can just step out and he can take the, the, the spotlight for the entire time uh, on the music between the lyrics. And instead of having to make sure that Bobby gets his licks in and the keyboardist and everybody else, Jerry just goes to town on it. And Dan, if you've got that teed up for us, we'd love to listen to it. That is the boys jumping off, uh, the boys, Jerry jumping off into an amazing solo between verses on And It Stoned Me from this Live at the Eel on August 10th, 91. As as much as I love talking about it, it's too bad we just can't sit here and listen to the whole thing because it's really that good and I will be listening to it on my way home. Um, And what I like about it, Rob, even more than anything, is the covers that Jerry would play. And of course, this is a great cover. But he takes this song and he goes right into another cover, another Chuck Berry tune, which he played a few times himself, but somehow the dead never got around to playing. You never can tell. C'est la vie, known as the obviously the dance tune from, thank you, Pulp Fiction, senior moment there, when John Travolta and Uma Thurman get up and do that little dance scene, which for me is the highlight of the whole movie. They got the Chuck Berry version of it, but the Jerry band, I have it on a few different Jerry albums, one from Hampton and a few others, and when Jerry plays it, man, it's just something special. It's a great, great tune, and uh, there, there's not a there's not a song on this album where I get up and walk out of the room for five minutes. You know, lay down Sally in the second set, 
everybody needs somebody to love. It's just it's it's great fun, and you can tell what a great time he's having with it. Well, that's the really cool thing about the Garcia band. It's primarily a cover band. It's, there's there's obviously a handful of originals that were you know written. Some some of them ended up in the Dead's repertoire as well, but you know a lot of them that were just Garcia songs. But the vast majority of what he played were just songs that he loved. Were songs that were either old gospel tunes or old kind of plantation songs. And then there was a lot of Motown, a lot of That's late 60s music as well. And I think that if you look at who his favorite you know, lyricists are, like obviously Bob Dylan is the primary, you know, he sings more Dylan songs than anything else. But I think a close number two is probably Van Morrison, the handful of songs there, Jimmy Cliff being another one that kind of came out of the same era. But when you think about songs that aren't covered by a lot of other people, we talked about Susan Tedeschi playing Angel from Montgomery and what a great song that was because of the emotions that John Prine evoked on that. But the, the emotions that, that Van Morrison puts into Stone Me of just like the, the, the simplicity of youth and just, just what, how amazing childhood is. So it's a, it's a, a wonderful yes. song. And it makes a lot of sense that it's a tune that Jerry would cover. The, the, everything we know about him was kind of like almost this, this playfulness about him and almost like a childlike curiosity that he took into everything that he did. And, and you can, and you can hear it. And, and, and sometimes when I'm listening to his music, I, I, it, I can actually envision him sitting up on stage smiling as he's playing. It's like you feel the smile coming through. You can, you can really feel that in it. And it, it, it's, it's just great to see. Sometimes I admit Garcia band shows can be a tad predictable. And if you see a bunch of them in a row, you might wind up seeing a large number of repeats. But I don't even care if I hear some of these tunes two or three or four times in a row. That just means I get to hear Jerry play them two or three yeah. or four times in a row. Yeah. And there's, there's there's nothing in there that I'm going to, like I say, I hope Bobby fans don't yell at me, but there's no red rooster sitting in there where yeah. we're all going to go to the bathroom really fast and come running back. It's just, I don't see well, it. Here's a surprising stat, Larry. I mean, people always ask me, like, what song I saw Garcia play the most? And everyone would think it's a Grateful Dead song, but surprisingly, it was Sisters and Brothers because he played it every single Garcia band show. And Breadbox would be number two. Breadbox, he played almost every show. And then third would be Deal, because I yep. saw it with both The Grateful Dead and Garcia. And even though Deal closed the majority of, of JGB sets, you'd still get a Let's Spend the Night Together. you get some other closers once in a while as well. So it wasn't 100%. But I don't think I saw a Garcia band show. If I did, maybe no more than two or three that didn't have Sisters and Brothers in it. And very few more than that that didn't mm-hmm. have Breadbox. How sweet it is was, as you said, a very consistent opener. There's certain things here. I saw, I saw probably 30 Shining Stars. So... I didn't mind the repeats at all because I loved the song selection. Yep, and and, and like you said, I mean, it, it didn't matter if you heard Jerry play it three times. However you heard it those other times was not the way he was going to play it tonight. Yeah. There was going to be something different. And for me, that's half the fun is listening to it and finding those differences and seeing where he's changed things and trying to get a sense for, is he in a good mood? So he it all sounds a little more uplifting or a little more down or whatever the case may be. But he definitely talked through his guitar and, you know, it, it, it was a very unique group with with Merle and with with John Kahn. Well, and then of course um, Melvin. Melvin, thank you. Another senior moment. But See, I I'm love here John Kahn. I'm here to help. <laughs> that's, what we, that's what I love about you, Rob. When my kids aren't here, I need somebody else I can fall back on. But but like John Kahn and, and and all of those guys, and they just had a great little relationship, and they just went around playing these shows and. Well, I think for Jerry, it was as much of a release as anything. Yeah, and look, there's certain artists I think are, you know, are, are hard to cover. And a lot of people say Van Morrison's a hard one to cover because his voice is just so legendary that how do you go in there? Like, it's easy to cover Dylan because if you could sing it better than he could and you could play guitar better, then can you improve on, on an already great song? But Van's a tough right. act to follow. And the, the two songs that I think Jerry just did so well the, the, that were Van songs were Stone Me and, and Bright Side of the Road. 
if you listen to that Hampton, Virginia, I think November of 91, Brightside, it's just, like, it, he comes into the second verse on that thing so hard that, that I think Van would listen to it and go, yeah, okay, that's that's how you sing on Brightside. It's just spectacular. I know the song, I know the the show, and I'm familiar with it, of course, from, from Van. It is it's a great tune. And I love it. It stoned me. It's just, it's always been a favorite song of mine. And Jerry does, he has a voice that has that same type of emotion in it. And he's capable, maybe we don't talk about it enough. I mean, I always thought that clearly Jerry's a great guitar player, but I think he's, you know, a really, really wonderful singer too. And I think that was his musical roots. And he, he understood the, 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 the value of, of what he could do with his voice, right? There's some versions of Samson and Delilah where he gets jumps in on the end, he tear this old building and he holds that anyway, he just drags it out a little bit and sometimes he doesn't. But you know, when you can tell, boy, when he's when he's doing those little things with his voice and just the way he cracks it and rolls it, it's it's really special and he he nails it. It's stoned me on this version and and on others, my sisters and brothers, it's always a tune I sometimes find myself going back and listening to again right away because I wasn't quite paying attention close enough to it the first time around. So I want to make sure I really uh I really get it, and then "Deal" is a card is, is a tune that I'll sit in my car in the parking lot or in my driveway, waiting for it to end before I get out because I I can't find a suitable place to just cut it up, cut it off, and get up and walk away. That brings up the, the great question of: Would you rather see the Dead play "Deal" or would you rather see Garcia Band play "Deal"? Because for me, it's not even close. I, I think Garcia Band deals just blow Dead deals out of the water. I, sure, I, I I absolutely agree with that, and I think that a lot of these tunes did slide over onto the Grateful Dead side. A large number of his tunes did, but they were never played the same. And I think that even when he was playing it with the Dead, it was kind of like, okay, this is my tune, but I got to make sure that Bobby doesn't fuck up. I got to make sure that Phil stays where I need him to stay. I got to make sure the drummers... Stay. When he was playing with his band, they all they they lived and breathed with him. They knew where he was going. They knew what he was doing. They knew how he wanted to do it. And he knew how he wanted to do it. And sure... I think you just take some of these tunes and, and just go to town. Well, that, that's, uh, having said that... That's why I think Ruben and Charisse never just, made the trans, transition from Garcia Band to Grateful Dead all that well. Like They tried to do it a few times, but it never came out the way that Garcia Band already had it down. And Ruben's such an amazing song, you'd think it's perfectly suited for the Grateful Dead, but ultimately it just ended up being a much better Garcia Band song. It's funny you mention it's one of my all-time, all-time favorite Jerry songs. And it, it's such a beautiful song. And yes, it's wonderful to hear when he plays it. And it's a shame that the Dead couldn't quite find a way to play it more. I've said that about a lot, a lot of their tunes. I, I think there's, what, like two or three times that the Dead played Mission in the Rain or something? Very rarely, but they popped it in there a few times. I love that song. I would. I, I love the fact that he was playing Comes a Time in 85, and then they, or, yeah, 85, and then they brought it back again later. It's just a beautiful song. And to hear Jerry sing these tunes... Even if it's with the dead, of course, it's still great. But yeah, when he's with his guys, you know, I mean, John Kahn plucking on that bass with all due respect to Phil, who I love and think is the greatest bass player of all time, maybe. John Kahn on these songs, this is his band and his tunes. He he was picked and designed to play these songs with Jerry. Yep, absolutely. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm a sucker for background singers. So I always loved Gloria and Jackie. Oh. And those guys made me really happy. And when I think about why he covered Van Morrison, Van Morrison, a very similar band composition with the Garcia band was with, with, with the female backup singers as well. But it just made it perfectly translatable from Van's repertoire over to the Garcia bands. Well, and those, the voices, one of these days we'll get around on the show to talking about Don, a pro or my, for or against, right? And, and I've heard the guys on the dead show on Sunday night and they almost reflectively 
defend her. And I get that. It's never anything personal about Donna. It's just sometimes her voice could make a tune and other times it could destroy a tune. And I just never found the dead while they were playing together as the dead to be a, a, a place that was as well suited for the female vocalist. For the, it, was, it was just like a lot of male testosterone music coming together in a magical way and whatever it was and it was. But on the Jerry Garcia band, likewise, I can't imagine it without those two. And they're, I mean, they have great voices, but it's more than just their voices. They, they weren't just given words. They're not just other singing words. They know the tunes. They know the songs. They understand it. And you can hear in the way that they sing and in the way that they support Jerry and where they come in and where they drop out. And it used to be great to see them play. And they'd just be back there and back and forth singing, just cranking it out. And when they were cranking it out, Jerry always had a big smile on his face. So you just knew that in his mind, this is the way this song should sound. Well, that's why I think that a lot of the gospel songs are so well suited to the Garcia band as well, because Gloria, Jackie, and, and Melvin all came out of playing uh, a lot in church. Those guys were, were primarily in, in this song selection again, whether it's Lucky Old Son or Mississippi Moon or Sisters and Brothers. There's a lot of traditional gospel that was in there. I'm trying to think of some other ones that, that were kind of the same. Well, my favorite is uh, Swing Low, yeah. uh, which was on the acoustic, the Jerry Garcia acoustic live album. They play a killer version of Swing Low. I love that. My mother used to sing me that when I was a kid. Here's Garcia up there just cranking it out like, like nobody's business. And, and there is. There's just one great tune after another that he comes by. And, and so, yeah. I mean, clearly we could sit here and talk about Jerry all day. and, and We should. I would never get bored. <laughs> that's that's, the, that's and, the point of the show, Larry. It's fine yeah, with let's, me. let's talk about Jerry all day. I understand. Yeah. Right. No, I, I absolutely agree because it, it is just so wonderful. And, and obviously, you want Jerry around forever, but you know, only Jerry could find a way to die and by doing it, create this perfect little span of days that works out perfectly for everyone to just take the focus off the band and just drop it right on him during this period of time. And everybody's on board with it. The band members are on board with it, as far as I can tell. All the radio stations are on board with it. And we just go home every night. And I told my wife, no no Grateful Dead this week. It's all Jerry. And she loves Jerry, too. I think by the end, she's probably happy to get some Grateful Dead back. But I'm I'm just thrilled to have so much good Garcia music to to listen to all night and really regret not having gone out and been able to see him a few more times. Yeah, well... I love that we did a show about the JGB rather than just the Grateful Dead. I think we should do more. I think we should talk more about individual members of the JGB and the influence that John Kahn had on his playing or the influence that Merle Saunders had on his playing. But uh, perhaps we, we should sure. find that as a theme coming up on, on one of their birthdays or on one of their other milestones. But it's it's underappreciated, undercovered. And, and for all those out there that don't know that much about the Garcia band or know that much about the other iterations of Jerry's different lineups, whether it's Reconstruction or whether it's Legion of Mary or whether it's um, Olden in the Way. There's a ton of good music out there that's non-Grateful Dead but still has Garcia that get out there and start start scouring because there's so many fun, fantastic lineups and different iterations that are out there. I completely agree. And as this show is airing on the 9th, I believe, which is, in fact, the date of Jerry's passing. We would be remiss if we didn't mention that. And uh, rather than giving him the the famous send-off that Rush Limbaugh gave him about you know, just another cheap dope dealer died today or whatever it was, I think it's very important to remember Jerry and all the great things he did for all of us, not just the music, but everything that he stood for and everything that he brought to the table and everything that he did that helped create this band that we all love and can't get enough of. And we talk about going to fish and we talk about widespread panic and we talk about all these other bands and those bands aren't really anything if the Grateful Dead aren't there to really kind of set the stage and pave the road and 
show everyone how it was done. And I, th- I think most of those people know that and appreciate it too. But we can talk about it all day, but it's important every now and then just to stop and take notice of this and note that I'm sure for his family, it must be a difficult day and hope that they know that all the Legion of Jerry fans out there love them and support them and will hopefully be respectful enough to give them their space that they deserve. Yeah, well said. And I, I think I'll let you end the show with exactly that. I've got nothing else to say tonight uh, aside from we'll see you next week. And thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Absolutely. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you to Rob Hunt and Jim Marty. Thank you to our producer, Dan Humiston. Uh, this is Larry Mishkin from Chicago, and we will talk to you next week. Have a great week. Be safe, be fun, and use your cannabis responsibly. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your cannabis business podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on Podcon X. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at the Talking Hedge. You can find me at the Talking Hedge Podcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out.